Uh, it's a real joy to be home with you guys. If you don't know me, my name is Brian White. I'm uh, one of the interns here at Resurrection San Diego Church. And uh, Janie, my wife, and I have been on a trip, so we've been away from home for two weeks, and we missed you guys dearly. Um, as Joel so uh, graciously prayed for Rob, he is uh, gone away on vacation and hopefully getting the rest that he uh, deserves and has earned with uh, Nisa and the girls. We are continuing with our series that we do on the first Sunday of each month, which is the uh, Year of Rejoicing series, where we look at different ways in which God calls us to rejoice and find joy in Him. Um, Before I read our scriptures, let me just... uh, give us a thumbnail sketch. We're going to be parachuting right into the uh, epistle of 1 Peter this morning. It's just a one-off. We're only going to be here this week. And so it's helpful for us to understand what's going on in 1 Peter as we uh, take a look at the uh, few verses that we're going to read. We're only reading a little bit this morning. The epistle of 1 Peter is a short epistle. It's about five chapters. It's written by, uh, guess who? It's written by Peter the Apostle to uh, persecuted Christians who would be living in and around Rome. And it has several major themes that are really helpful for us this morning in that uh, he is speaking to Christians who would be living in a world that not only judges them, but is actively persecuting them for who they are and how they live. Contrary to what that would feel like and the suffering that they would go through as disciples, Peter is calling them to live in a way that uh, will not only encourage one another to continue in their faith, but also will be their greatest testimony to God. So in the midst of all this struggle and um, persecution that the church faces, Peter points them towards the Lord in the fact that he is coming. Literally, the verse before we're going to read this morning says, the end is near, so be sober and remain in prayer. And he's telling Christians both then and telling you and I now that everything that God has promised to do in his redemptive plan has happened. The stage is set and that Jesus can return at any time. And so to live in light of that, and to treat each other in light of the reality that Christ is on his way. So as, if I could ask you to stand, I'm going to read for us uh, out of 1 Peter 4, verses 8 through 11. This is the word of the Lord. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, and whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you that you are a God who takes joy in not only making yourself known, but you, you give us a way to understand you through your word and uh, that you are a God who takes joy in leaving your imprint on creation. We look into everything that we see and experience and we see you, Father, and uh, even more so that you take joy in meeting with us, that you set aside one day of every week where we can be with you and commune with you and hear about how much you love us and the faithful ways that you care for us, Lord. 
In the next few minutes as we study your word, Father, I pray that we would come away with a deeper understanding of just how beautiful and perfect your love for us is and all the ways that that works in our lives with one another. I pray that you would give us a deeper grasp of the beauty and the power and the majesty of Jesus and that we would come away renewed and strengthened in our faith. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, my Lord, my rock, and my redeemer. Amen. Uh, you know, Peter's writing to uh, persecuted Christians and telling them that the way that they live, the fact that they're called to live holy lives as disciples, is what's going to give their greatest testimony to a world that persecutes and judges them and hates them. Sadly, uh, if you pay attention to the news at all, you will look into the world and you will see that oftentimes that's not the message that the world gets from the church. These people are so radically different that, man, what is going on with that? It's not really what happens. In preparing for this message, I just did one simple Google search. I looked at the oracle that knows all things, looked on Google for 30 seconds. Church conflict, church split, pastor in court, pastor accused of this. Nothing but strife and conflict. It's the first thing you see. I found an article written by a public newspaper about a, a large popular church in Seattle. It was written in 2014 about a church called Mars Hill. It's a very popular church. Very large at its apex, somewhere around 13,000 people. They had several different campuses all over the country. And the story that this newspaper told was how, uh, really unfortunately, and I think um, unfairly, the leadership, uh, particularly the lead pastor, was so um, ingrained in conflict with those that he was leading that he misused his authority, his position of influence, and it caused church-wide conflict. And eventually, actually, the whole church fell apart. Now, to be fair, no one man can take down a church. It takes a lot of people engaging in church conflict and strife. But the tragedy was is that I could go and not even look for more than 30 seconds and find a stunning testimony of the church of Jesus Christ, and not stunning in a good way. It was a devastating witness to all the things that were called to avoid and not do with one another. And that's what the world sees. That's why we hear a common criticism in the world. The church is full of hypocrites. Peter is saying, look, in light of the fact that you have eternity knocking at the door, that Christ has set the stage and is coming, here's how you're called to live, particularly in the midst of the fact that you are all going to be under pressure, experiencing persecution, and in the midst of conflict with the world, to love one another deeply. And he talks about some very concrete ways that we can do that. I think that what Peter is telling us, what the Holy Spirit is teaching us in this passage, like the big main idea is that you and I are actually able to rejoice as God is glorified through us as we practice hospitality for one another, as we learn to serve one another with the gifts that he's given us, and that through those things, what he actually teaches us is how to love one another deeply in a flawed and fallen world. So we're going to take that step by step. We'll start with practicing hospitality to one another. You know, Peter's immediate context when he's writing this letter is helpful because in the early church, there was no such thing as a church campus. There's no such thing as megachurch. There's no such thing as a church building. Literally, when the early church started, they would be meeting largely in people's homes. And so the principle of practicing hospitality towards other Christians was actually a fundamental way that God helped the church grow and caused it to function by people hosting church and worship gatherings in their own homes. Likewise, people that were teachers uh, who would travel and teach to other congregations would be doing it uh, exclusively dependent on the um, grace and the hosp- 
the hospitality that Christians would extend towards them when they traveled. You have to think about it. You know, we drove six miles to get here, and it took us seven minutes. Maybe you came from North County, and it took 30 minutes. But in the ancient world, the trip of 20 miles was at least an overnight trip. And so if you were going, giving the task of preaching the Word of God, you were doing that dependent on the fact that there would be somebody there to show you hospitality, to meet your needs, and to house you as you carried out the ministry of the gospel. You know, I can't help but um, find it a bit funny that in verse 9, what Peter writes isn't just show hospitality to each other, but he says, show hospitality to each other without grumbling. So it's like he knows on any given day what our attitude can be about being generous, about opening up our lives to other people, right? Um, The idea of hospitality for others really isn't just something that um, began in the early church. It's actually fundamental to God's character. We actually see the very heart of God at work in this idea all throughout redemptive history. If you go all the way back to the beginning of Scripture, um, one of the things that really fascinates me is that God has always modeled hospitality for his creation in every part of it. In Genesis 1, God creates the heaven and the earth. And in his creation of Adam and Eve, what does he do? He gives them dominion over the animals. He tells them, look, all the plants are here for you. It's food for you. And then he even goes further and he creates creates this beautiful personal space called the Garden of Eden where they can live and to care for things, to have purpose and meaning. And he promises, this is where I'll commune with you. This is your space. This is where I will show you hospitality and love you in this garden. And we will live together in that space. If you move it forward, when God creates a people out of nothing at all, when he calls the nation of Israel into existence as his covenant people, he tells them the same thing. He calls them to be people who practice hospitality to strangers and foreigners, and he does that out of his care and concern for them. Uh, Deuteronomy ten eighteen through 19 says, He, meaning God, shows love to the foreigners who live among you and gives them food and clothing. So you too must show love to foreigners, for you yourselves were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. Moving into the New Testament, uh, scholars will often say that it's a fundamental ethic of Christianity that we show hospitality to people that are not like us, to the stranger and the foreigner. It permeates through every page of the Gospels. The Gospel of Luke is often described as the Gospel to the outsider just for that reason, because this entire its entire premise is predicated on this beautiful expose of Jesus going to people who are strangers and outsiders and showing them love and concern and drawing them into the kingdom of God. Um, In Jesus commenting on how God will speak about the righteous at the final judgment in Matthew, he even comments to this. Um, He says that when we're actually serving others, we're actually serving him. Matthew 25, 35 through 37 says, For I was hungry... And you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And you know, that last phrase is particularly comforting for some of us in this room. Not me, but maybe other people in this room may find that particularly comforting. You know, as I was thinking about the concept of hospitality, we have a very American, um, probably home and garden, modern-day concept of what hospitality means. Have your house in perfect order, cook the right meal, be the perfect host. Everything that fits to a a 21st century um, worldview and sensibility about what's good and right. Um, 
But what's interesting is that this word really is a compound word in Greek. It's made up of two different words. And a slap together, if you translated them literally, just right out the gate, it would mean to love the stranger or to love the foreigner. And I love that. <laughs> I love everything about that, that God tells us, if you want to know how you should love one another, you shouldn't just love people that look like you and sound like you and talk like you. You should love people that are strange to you because that's how God operates in his people, right? Um, Here, Peter, when he's writing this epistle, he's reminding us that God calls us to show hospitality to those that are strangers to us in our own lives. Um, This automatically pushes you and I out of our comfort zones to serve those that are unlike us in in everyday ways and very fundamental ways. This pushes us into the opportunity to practice um, grace the way that God defines it, and that's by... um, mixing with people we wouldn't normally mix with and serving people that are not like us. You know, I said that Janie and I had been gone for two weeks, and uh, I was at a church where I was preaching for two Sundays, deep, 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 deep in the Midwest, deep in the Midwest, (laughs) in a land far, far away in a galaxy that's very different than Southern California. And it was so interesting when I showed up to this church to preach that we, people would come and introduce themselves, and particularly me, not Janie. Everybody likes Janie, my wife. But they would particularly come up and begin to speak to me, and you could see the whole like, mental process that they would go through behind their eyeballs as they got to know me. You know? They'd be like, oh, you're from Southern California. That's, I hear that's different out there. That's, I'm sure it's nice, you know. <laughs> But we were in a, a small congregation, it was maybe 50 or 60 people, and one of the things that they did for us, you know, it was funny, God is, um, God's sense of humor is so funny. We went out there with these huge expectations that this was going to be an amazing trip filled with nothing but vacation time. We're going to be relaxing, fishing, hiking, glorifying God through our leisure and no responsibility in work whatsoever, because that's how I glorify God best, Right? But it was a trip that was full of unexpected twists and turns, things we didn't plan for, things that threw us out of our comfort zones, things that stretched us out, stressed us out, made us realize how really easy it is to get us worked up and irritated and impatient with one another. And we had some really sweet moments there, but one of the things that I really appreciate is this congregation uh, was very intentional in a natural way of practicing hospitality. As soon as we got there, one of the people in the congregation said, yeah, we're going we're gonna to put you up at my house. Gave us our own bedroom. Door was always open to us no matter what time, day or night, we came and went. They offered us the use of one of their cars, but we had our own rental car. Anytime that we were there, they, they planned, without asking, they planned to make a meal for us so we could eat with them. Uh, in the nine days we were there, I think we had four or five invitations to come over for dinner, and people wanted to host us just to get to know us and feed us a meal knowing that we were traveling there and serving at the church. And it was one of the ways in which we experienced the grace that God wants us to practice for one another with people that were very different. You know, boot-wearing, Wrangler-wearing, different than San Diego different, you know? And that's just my speed, but man, when they met me, they were like, wow, you're strange. But sure, let's have dinner. Let's, you know. <laughs> they were gracious about it. That's also, if you... If you don't know us, if you do know us, you know that that speaks right to the heart of Resurrection San Diego, us as a community of believers. If you don't, uh, if before you read um, our website or read our literature before too long, you'll come across one of our driving principles that we um, believe is biblical, and that's that we hold the unity in diversity under the lordship of Christ. 
And the reason that we do that is that we believe that what seems strange to our flawed and broken perspective in the world and other people is actually what part, that's a huge part of what makes up the complexity and the diversity and the beauty of the body of Christ is that we're all so very different and very unusual and all brought together to worship God as a supernatural body of believers. Um, So really what we often view as strange at first glance is intentional by God's design. Uh, and we're, we're called to participate and celebrate that diversity along with God. He sets that model for us all throughout Scripture. We're called to practice that with one another. And a major way that we do that is through um, practicing hospitality towards each other in very mundane, ordinary ways. Not home and garden, not over the top. Um, very practical, everyday ways with the means that God gives us. Uh, that means that we uh, welcome those that are different but are united to us in Jesus or those that don't know Jesus. We open up our homes and the messiness of our lives to people that are seeking to know what God is really like. And they want to see that through tangible examples of people loving and serving them, and that's what we can offer. Um, Lissa Melanakis, if you don't know her, she's our uh, Justice League director. Most, people, most churches would call that their mercy ministry, but we know better. We know it's our uh, Justice League and she's the director of it because she works at this wonderful ministry that her and one of my good brothers, John Savage, run called the Ladle Ministry. This is a ministry that happens literally steps away from here every Sunday. Literally, you could go and experience it two day after service where they will feed up close to 300 people who are homeless and living in the communities right around here. And what happens inevitably, I think, anytime that they get people to come and volunteer is they think that they are coming with a trajectory of I'm, I'm fine. I'm going to help these people who are not because they're different and whatever they're going through is not what I'm going through, but I'm going to bless them with my service. And they walk away realizing that these people are just like me. I am just like them. And we are experiencing the grace of God through the relationship that we build over lunch. It's just that straightforward. And that's how God operates in the church. That's how he calls us to operate. That's a fundamental way that we seek to serve the world that we're living in as a community here. And that's what God calls the church to do also. Um, But, you know, there's another element to that that I really appreciate um, because of my personal personality and makeup. And that that means that we're really called to love and to get to know and, and to walk through life with people that are really strange to us personally. And I have a big secret. I was thinking about whether I should break the news this morning or not, but I think you all need to know that every single person in this room is strange to somebody else here. Every one of you was a weirdo to somebody. <laughs> if you're like me, you can ask my wife. You're a weirdo to everybody <laughs> sooner or later. Everybody thinks this dude is weird. Actually, she always comments like twice a week that living with me is like living with an animated cartoon character. I don't know if that's a compliment or not. <laughs> No, that makes me weird. <laughs> we, why do I make that joke? Because we, without even realizing it, you and I walk through the world thinking, I'm the standard of normal. That's what makes you strange, is that you're not meeting my standard of normal. So you're strange, I get it. We're going to pray for you, because you're weird. <laughs> That's not the way that God views us at all, right? Uh, we, we like to think that we're more like people who are in the in crowd, or we're the standard of a normalcy in life, but the reality is, is that we are more like, we're more like the kids from Stranger Things. We're more like kids who are in their mom's basement 24-7 playing Dungeons and Dragons. 
with headsets on talking to each other. If you're old like me, we're like the bad news bears. We're the kids that end up on a baseball team that nobody picks because we're the, we're the dropouts. We're the outsiders. Uh, Francis Chan is a, a famous pastor and scholar. He, was, um, he founded a church, uh, a mega church here in the States, I think somewhere up north actually. He tells this interesting story about when he was a pastor there um, in, in his church. He tells a story about a gang member who came to the church. This young man had made a profession of faith and uh, he came to the church and started attending and he wanted to uh, become a member and so he came and he got baptized. But then after a while, his attendance dropped off, and they didn't see him anymore. And so Francis Chan asked one of the other leaders to try and look him up. And this man found him, and he talked to him. He said, hey, what's going on? How come you don't come to church anymore? And this young man told him a story. He said, you know, when I came to church, I thought it was going to be like what life in the gang was like. When I got jumped into the gang, everything changed. I mean, these people were everything all of a sudden. They, we were together 24-7, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We were always together. Everything we did, they did with me, and we looked out for one another. And I thought that when I came here and got baptized, that the church was going to be the same way. And he said, I didn't realize that it was just going to be Sundays and sometimes on Wednesdays when it worked out with my schedule. You see, the tragedy there is he couldn't tell the difference between the church and the world. They had the same appeal, the same track record. Matter of fact, in his eyes at that point, the gang had stronger appeal and better consistency. God is calling us to, as disciples, God is calling us to be people who come that form and comprise loving communities that look radically different than the world does and anything that the world offers. That means that our love for each other should tolerate more differences in each other. It means that we should forgive more wrongs than the world does. It means that you and I should practice exuding a warmth and a hospitality that others experience the love of Jesus through, through ordinary relationships and ordinary ways that we serve them. In verse 8, Peter says, uh, continue to show deep love for one another. And what he's describing here, the type of love that he's talking about, implies a love that is constantly straining to complete its goal constantly working towards achieving its goal of loving another human being. You know, this happens through all the ways that we can use the gifts and the talents that God gives us to help other people in our lives, right? Um, When I met, this is, I don't know why this is like the Janie sermon. When I met Janie, she's in like three of these sermon analogies. Uh, When I met Janie, we began dating. She lived in Riverside, another galaxy far, far away. And, uh, we began to get serious, and she found out what I was doing in my life, that I was involved in a church plant, that it was a small, growing community. This was uh, some time ago, and when we became engaged, we really began to pray and talk about what it would look like for us to mesh our lives together. And so we came to the decision that because God was calling us to church plant life, that she would move down here. And she came to me, and she said, you know, I've been praying about it, and I think that we, if, I, if I'm going to join this mission, and if God's calling me to this mission with you, then we need to live in the community where we're going to serve. I want to live right near the church plan. That's right here in the downtown area. And I thought, wow, oh, this is one of the reasons why I want to marry this woman. She's so idealistic. I mean, that's really sweet. Great, let's pray about it. But thinking in the back of my head, the rent's too expensive. That's not going to work out. I don't know where we're going to live. We'll see how it goes. But we prayed, lo and behold, the very first apartment that we walked into Two miles from here was under market value. Boom, it's available right now. We got rent. And what Janie proceeded to do, instead of saying, how is this church going to serve my needs? And how are these people going to serve me? 
She moved down here in the absence of any meaningful relationships outside of me. And she began to think about how she could serve and practice hospitality in our small, growing church plant. And so what she, she started doing is she came to me and she said, you know what, we should use our apartment, because we're so close, we should use our apartment as a space where we can host people for brunch. We'll invite people over who don't know us, who don't know the church, and don't know each other. And they can eat together and share a meal and get to know each other. And in that, we were practicing the grace and love of God. We were creating a space where people could get to know each other and experience God's love through ordinary relationships over a meal together. Um, The other thing that's a wonderful blessing in God calling us to practice hospitality is that you and I grow as a result of that. Inevitably, you always grow as a result of your acts of serving another human being. God embeds that into this concept of biblical hospitality, that we don't only see how God works in another person's life, but we benefit from the spiritual growth and the reward that we experience through serving another and seeing God work through us through our very feeble attempts to serve other people. God inevitably teaches you and I to be people who are compassionate and merciful when we stretch ourselves out and serve other human beings. Inevitably. It takes all the hard edges off of us. That's one of the things that I love about serving in ministries like the ladle. You will meet people from all walks of life and you will learn God teaches us to be compassionate and merciful and love them right where they're at. And God also, the second thing that God does is he calls us to steward or exhibit his grace through serving one another with the gifts that he gives us. Um, And that's the second point, that we are called to steward God's grace by serving one another with our gifts. Uh, You know, in two short verses here, Peter speaks to the great reality that God gives human beings supernatural gifts to use in their lives. There has been much, much ink spilled in the history of the church about spiritual gifts. One of the things that I love about this passage is Peter is not even slowing the bus down to get caught up in that. He literally just classifies it in two broad categories because his point really isn't about everything that we focus on in the modern church in terms of spiritual gifts and practicing them. His point is to um, highlight for us that in using our spiritual gifts, we serve one another and we help each other experience God's grace through that process. So often in today's church culture, we are so obsessed with um, having the right kind of spiritual gift. What is a spiritual gift? How can I get more spiritual gifts? Um, Can I order a spiritual gift off the internet? Is that guy on TV really going to give me another spiritual gift? Can I heal? What are they? When should we use them? Who uses them? Who can have them? How many are there? Why can't we use this? When can we use that? Not all of that overlooks the point that Peter's driving home here, that God gives us gifts to use to minister to one another and to glorify him and to give a testimony to the world outside watching us. And he lists them in two general categories just for that reason. He says for those who speak, they should speak as those representing God himself, speaking the very oracles of God. And those who serve should serve by the strength that God gives them. First, it's interesting to notice, and I think that this is something that we have cognitively overlook almost every time we read this, Peter doesn't say if we have a spiritual gift to use. He says as each one of us has been given a gift to use for the service of others. I mean, I think if we're honest, we walk into church on any given Sunday and think, I don't, you know, I don't know if that's a good fit for me. I don't know if I'm going to do that. Maybe I have a gift. Maybe I don't. Looks like they got it. Look, I'm going to go home. I'll see you next week. That's not how God has designed body life. 
He has literally given each one of us a means and a way that we can serve one another and help each other grow and glorify him through that process. That reminds us of uh, several more. The sermon is full of things that hopefully will make us uncomfortable. This, that reminds us of several more things that really push us out of our comfort zones, and that's that life in the church, life in the body of Christ, is fundamentally designed to be communal. It's designed to be corporate. This is not an individual experience that God has called you into. It's an experience that we're called and designed to do together with one another in every aspect of our lives. Um, God's gift of grace comes to us through his use of his people in our lives and in their lives. And as Peter tells us, when we are receiving love and help from other people through the use of their spiritual gifts, that is actually the grace of God being given to us. Uh, we sometimes call this um, the ordinary means of grace, and that's just a, that's a concept that communicates the fact that God promises us over and over again in the Bible that he calls us to do certain things, and when we do certain things, he will help us grow spiritually and give us his grace through those vehicles. So what are they? We've already done several of them this morning when we gather together and we pray together. That's a means of God's grace when we worship corporately as a community, when we study the word, when we take the Lord's Supper, when we live in fellowship with one another. Those are all means of God's grace, ways that he promises to be with us, to serve us, and to help us grow spiritually. Uh, but that also means that God uses us in our gifts to help others. Uh, it means that we need to be present with one another, intentionally making decisions to push through everything that makes us want to not do that. It means that we need to think about the gifts and the talents that we have as not really being solely about us. It's very unappealing to me. Maybe not to you. I know that's not an issue for you, but for me, that's unappealing that every time I think about all these talents, I think are the result of me, and my qualities, God reminds me, I have given you this to serve other people. Um, you know, that really presents a double-edged sword to us, I think, in some ways. It means that uh, when God gives us gifts, he gives us gifts to steward them, not to take ownership over them. And that's, you know, the definition of a steward literally is somebody who manages the affairs or possessions of another. And that entire church is this a group of people who God has given this incredible privilege and responsibility of managing his affairs here on earth. So we make up the kingdom of God in the church here on earth. And so we're given this incredible privilege of stewarding that and managing that for the world to see how we use it. But what can be even more challenging, I think, in some ways, is that, um, is that we're going to be exposed as individuals. I think that we are exposed through serving others with our gifts, whatever the gift is that you have. I, we were at dinner one time with Don, actually, at our house, and Janie asked him, Don, what do you think your spiritual gift is? He, he says, well, my spiritual gift is playing air guitar in worship. That's right. <laughs> there you go. And everybody knows it. <laughs> but really what I thought about is, here's this man worshiping God in faith every Sunday, physically, visibly. And what is that doing for me? It encourages me to, number one, relax, man. This guy's in front of you playing air guitar because he loves the Lord every Sunday. What are you uptight about? Number two, God gives us this gift of faith to encourage one another, to serve one another. And Don serves me in that regard. He helps me remember the joy that I have, the gift that I have in worshiping God together with each other. Um, but it also means that you and I have to acknowledge our brokenness and our neediness, that we have areas in our lives where we need to be open to other people serving us. We really don't like that. Because that means that people are going to know all about your baggage. 
That'd be like people coming into your house before you've done laundry and be like, well, let's just dump this hamper out and see what's going on. And, oh, wow, look at this. Wow, I didn't know that. And just all of it exposed. That's how it feels for us. But remember, Peter is talking here. He's talking about how you and I can find joy in our testimony to God's grace working in our lives through each other. Now, in a world that values um, self-sufficiency and personal independence and self-reliance, how radically different does it look when we live out stewarding God's grace for one another in relationships? It looks radically different. They can't tell, well, maybe it's communist, maybe it's hippies, a rollover, they don't know what's going on. The world doesn't even have a category for what biblical community actually looks like when we do it together. Literally, it doesn't have a category for it because it's supernatural. But if we just, if we pause there and think about it, I mean, what, what would it be like if every one of us really practiced in our lives, in everyday ways, in very tangible everyday ways, practice uh, living in light of that reality? I mean, what if we looked at the gifts that God gives us as just that, as a beautiful gift that a loving Father has given you that you could never purchase and you could never earn. That would be so liberating because then we would be free from things like envy. We wouldn't look at other people in the church and envy them for the gifts that they have in practice. We would actually look at other people practicing their spiritual gifts and think, that is an expression of God's love for me, that he loves me so much that he has given this person that gift to serve me and to bless me, like air guitar on a Sunday morning. I would be free from the insecurity of thinking, oh, I need to know how I need to manage this gift or make this gift work in a way that makes me look good and people can't see me struggle or grow. Or We'd be liberated from all that because we would be holding a gift that our loving Father gives us to grow in, to practice, and to enjoy. And the greatest way that we enjoy it is by using it for each other's benefit. Uh, we also, one of the things that I love about this is that we experience contentment and peace in our own limitations and weaknesses. Now, honestly, isn't that unbelievable? I mean, that's just unbelievable. That God has designed a way for you to think about the things that make you most uncomfortable and be like, yeah, you know, I really suck at that. But God doesn't. And God serves me through other people who help me in that area. I mean, just think about that for a second. That's the life that God calls us to practice and to live with one another in relationship. It's, all these things are so counterintuitive to our, our brokenness and our flawed perspective on reality and the way that our sinful nature uh, works itself out. But the things that we view as the very source of our insecurities, our fears, and our shame really become the areas where we experience the power of God through the gift of other believers. It's a spiritual axiom that you see all throughout Scripture. Uh, we even begin, the more that we practice that, we begin to grow in our willingness to need others and to be okay needing others. And we begin to even celebrate the fact that God designs us to need each other. That's what, that's what when you walk into a church and you see them living um, a spirit-filled community that glorifies God and you're like, what is going on around here? That's what it is. It's people who know how much they need Christ and need each other, and they're open to both. And God works through them in those relationships, and he shines. Uh, you know, there's a, 
there's an interesting word choice that he uses here. Some versions in here, when they talk about uh, the grace of God, some versions of the Bible will translate it as being the varied grace of God. Some translations will say the manifold grace of God. But the thing that's really neat about it is that it kind of depicts the fact that God's grace is varied in its form. It has many different forms that God reveals it to us in the church in, but the way that it really shines the most brightly, the brilliance of God's grace shines in the church on the platform of our weakness and our brokenness and our needs. So God is like the master jeweler. You know, you walk into a jewelry shop and the jeweler will get out this black velvet first before he shows you that diamond that's got all kinds of flaws in it. He always gets out that black diamond. God is like the master jeweler and he lays out this black velvet and then he pulls out his grace in all its varied forms and he lays this brilliant stone on it. But it's the background that makes it shine so brightly. Right? And God's varied grace shines in all its brilliance on the foundation of our neediness and our need for each other and each other's gifts and our brokenness. We really don't like that. I mean, if you're not uncomfortable at this point, I don't know, you know, nothing will make you uncomfortable. When I think about that, I'm like, wow, that's really personal, God. I get it. You love me personal, but man, that's really personal. But God calls us into that because that's the way that we receive love and care from other people. God has ordained us to operate that way. Uh, The body of Christ really, truly uh, becomes the platform in which the beauty of Jesus' love for us shines the most brightly. That's what we're designed to do. And I think that um, what Peter's saying, what God shows us through biblical community is that practicing those two things are major vehicles for how God teaches us to love one another deeply. Uh, In verse 8, Peter says, most important of all, continue to show deep love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. Peter's stating here for us that loving each other deeply is to be the focal point of life together for God's people. And in this way, it is the foundation on which we serve others with our spiritual gifts and the way uh, we make practicing hospitality a way of life that makes us different than the world. Uh, We must also note here that Peter's not saying that um, our love for one another makes an atonement for other people's sins or pays the penalty for other people's sins at all. That's not what he's saying. Rather, he recognizes that we all experience a host of problems in relationships with other people. And whether those problems are real or fancied, that we will not be able to forgive and help them to grow if we're not loving them earnestly and persistently in our lives. I saw this quote from somebody this week, and I thought, man, this is so poignant for this passage. It's about biblical community. The quote says, Too many people come into community to find something, to belong to a dynamic group, to discover a life which approaches the ideal. If we come into community without knowing that the reason we come is to learn to forgive and be forgiven seven times, 77 times, we will soon be disappointed. And isn't that the truth? You know, no matter what you think you've come to community for in church, our real theology always shows up in human relationships. We're Presbyterians. We pride ourselves on knowing the right answer, knowing the right doctrine, and precision in Scripture. But what we really believe, where the rubber really hits the road, our real theology shows up in human relationships with one another. And God knows that about all of us. As stewards of God's grace, we're given the opportunity to help others experience forgiveness 
and his grace in the midst of conflict with them. God has designed us to operate in flawed and perfect relationships so he can work out the gospel in everyday ways through how we learn to forgive one another over and over and over and over again. Not holding grudges, learning to come alongside one another, learning to serve one another in the midst of all our frailties and setbacks and hang-ups and sins. But you know, the thing that's amazing about that is we begin to see people in the way that God sees people. We begin to view them as people who are suffering in need of compassion and kindness um, from God and also from us. You know, in the counseling world, there's this, there's this phrase that gets thrown around that says, hurt people hurt people. And that's about as biblically sound as it could get. Because really what it's communicating is that when we as broken, sinful human beings enter into relationships by our own power and our own methods, we inevitably affect and hurt other people. And so our brokenness breaks other people, and it affects other people. But God unravels that through the gospel, through the power of the Holy Spirit in church, in community. He unravels that. He teaches us to be people who don't just come with our brokenness, but people who enter into each other's frailties and learn to practice grace and forgiveness and generosity and loving service and kindness and friendship with one another. Um, and that changes how we operate in all our relationships. I mean, if you, that's really like that radically reorients how we view every relationship we have, especially people that we see are struggling. When we see people that are easily angered, we can really pause and think, okay, this person probably really thinks that God is angry with them over something. They're not experiencing God's grace. When we uh, are in a relationship with somebody who has a hard time receiving love, we can think this probably is a person who really struggles to believe that they are truly the beloved of God. In some way, they have a bad understanding about that. And so they struggle in this relationship. But our, our horizontal relationships are a means by which God helps us understand that brokenness and then bring it to him for healing. Uh, but that also means for us as individuals that God's going to expose us where we're weakest and he's going to expose the flaws that you and I have that we work our hardest to hide from one another. Uh, the greatest test of spirituality that we have as the church is the test of love. It's the greatest test of our spirituality. You could be the greatest anything, fill in the blank. You could be the greatest preacher. You could be the greatest deacon. You could be the greatest person in the pew in the entire universe of church history anywhere in any galaxy. But the real test of our spirituality as disciples is love. It's how we learn to love one another for Christ's sake. It's in our willingness to love others with the gifts that God has given us. But it's also in our willingness to allow others to love us with theirs in the places where we try and avoid the most. Real community in the Spirit of Christ gets formed on the other side of our fears. It gets formed on the other side of our brokenness and our baggage that we have in life. That's where it begins. And that happens when we open ourselves up to a community that's bound up in God's love and grace for us that we give to one another. You know, oftentimes, I use this if I'm in a counseling situation, that life in church is like being stuck on a never-ending bumper ride car in an amusement park that you never chose to go to in the first place. Life in the church is like, oh, 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 sorry, oh, oh, my God, oh, I didn't, oh, oh, my God, sorry. Uh, uh." 
over and over and over again, constantly bumping into people that are different, that are strange, that irritate us, that push us into areas that we don't want to live in, to practice forgiveness and grace in ways that we don't have time for, the patience for, or the desire to do. But loving each other deeply means that we view them with the mercy and empathy that God views them with. Now, that doesn't mean that we condone um, toxic relationships. It doesn't mean that we condone unrepentant sin in other believers with each other, because we don't. But it does mean that we view the effects of other people's brokenness as an opportunity for us to practice the gospel with them and for them to experience a real tangible example of forgiveness, especially for people that struggle in their faith a struggle with what feels like the abstract belief that a God forgives me at my worst. We begin to view people as God views them, as people who are in need of love and forgiveness, especially when they're at their worst. You know, um, Janie and I, early on, uh, we realized a couple of things that it took a lot of work to understand each other. <laughs> Newsflash. And um, that we needed to work out ways that we could work through disagreements and conflict in our marriage, right? And so we made a pact that in our married life that we would always assume the best about each other, especially when the other person had just hurt us and then we were in the midst of a misunderstanding. Now, why did we make that pact? Because we are such amazing human beings with all these incredible character traits. (laughs) I think she is, but I know that I am not. We made that pact with one another And inherent in making that pact, what we're saying is, when you hurt me and I misunderstand you and we misunderstand each other, I'm going to stop and I'm going to view you as God views you when you're struggling the most. I am going to see you as the object of God's love and affection and mercy. And I'm going to practice thinking about you and treating you and living with you in a relationship in the same way that God views me. And it reorients an entire relationship back onto the foundation of grace. Even in the midst of our worst behaviors are the way that we struggle the most in relationships. You know, uh, in all this, we really become the type of people that Jesus speaks about in the Sermon on the Mount. We become people who are peacemakers. That's really what all this is teaching us to do, to be peacemakers in life. Uh, We become people who extend grace because it's what we receive from the Lord and it's what we would want from other people. Uh, We remind others of how God loves them and forgives them as they do the same thing for us, especially when we're struggling. We become people who believe and live by the principle that Christian love, the Christian love means loving the unlovable. Because, you know, inevitably, that's what we all are. You know, I think the the greatest fear that every person has is that what they think about themselves at their worst is really what God thinks about them. That in their most unlovable moments, that people see that and they don't love them either. But people who love deeply are this tangible expression of God's love for them. We have no greater privilege as Christians than to be in a relationship with somebody who is at their worst, struggling the most, and believes from the very bottom of their heart that they are unlovable and give them a tangible example of somebody who loves them actively and reminds them that even more importantly than that, that God loves them. That's how we steward God's grace. 
It's the greatest privilege that we have. I don't know where anybody is at in this room. You may think that you have 90 years to live from today. But the reality is, is just as Peter is reminding us, that eternity is literally at the door. And that our life is very fleeting. We have very few moments in life. And the greatest thing that we will ever do for the Lord and for one another is to love each other when we are at our worst. And that's what loving each other deeply really means. We become people who are genuinely tender-hearted first because God was tender-hearted towards us. We become people who forgive others because God forgave us in Christ. It's the paradigm by which we view reality and learn to live together. Now, 25 minutes in, at least a few of you, half of you, all of you, at some points, or maybe through the whole sermon, are like, you know what? This is really wonderful stuff. These are wonderful platitudes. It sounds so amazing. This is really like, this is pie in the sky stuff. Man, I just, I, it's almost, I got to be honest, it's actually kind of unbelievable. I really wish I could experience that in my life. I really wish I could have that. But there's another part of us that sits here that doesn't believe it's possible. Every one of us struggles with that. Every one of us in our heart has a part that doesn't believe that. And the reason why is because we know other people's hearts. We know how other people have treated us. We know how people have hurt us in life. And even worse, we know our own hearts. We know how at the end of the day, we judge other people. At the end of the day, that people hate one another. And we judge each other. And so that leaves us in this predicament where we hear these wonderful truths that God tells us to live by. And we wonder, if I can't believe that you do that for me consistently, and I know that I can't do that consistently, where does that leave us? What are our options? That means that we have to look to somebody else. But you know, that's exactly what the gospel calls us to do. It calls us to look to somebody else who is not like us, who appears to be a stranger to us in every way. We are called to look to Jesus and to see how he responds to those that didn't show him hospitality. To look at the life of Jesus and see how he responds to people who judged him and did not serve him and hated him. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. You and I are called to do this also. We're called to do this not just for those who are like us, for those that really agree with us, who make us feel comfortable in life. But we're actually called even more so to do that for people that don't agree with us, for people that are radically different than us in every way. Jesus did this, not just for people who weren't like him, but he even did this for his enemies. Jesus didn't look down on people from the cross uh, and see a crowd filled with people that loved and supported him. It was no rally at the crucifixion. And thought, man, this is so easy to love these people because they all see things like I do. This is great. 
Jesus looked down from the cross on people that not only did not serve him, but judged him. And not only judged him, but hated him. And were unjustly murdering him. In the crucifixion, we see God's greatest act of mercy and kindness towards humanity. On the cross, Jesus was kind towards people that persecuted him, overlooking their treatment of him so that he could display God's mercy to all of sinful humanity. Likewise, knowing how unlovely and unlovable you and I actually are at the end of the day with our sinfulness, Jesus still came and dwelt among us. He still came and practiced hospitality with you and I. In the midst of our rejection of him, Jesus still showed us that he is the model of deep love and mercy. And he gives that to us unconditionally. If God could have such incredible patience with us, then you and I can walk in faith knowing that he desires us to show kindness and mercy to one another. And to know that he has promised to give us the power to do these things while we wait for his return. That's the work that we're called to do. To love one another while we wait for his return for us. That's the motivation for our love and service of one another. Is the way that Christ has loved us. That's a love worth rejoicing in. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for being, uh, we thank you for being a God who um, takes such great pleasure in hospitality and kindness and generosity to us. We thank you that you are a God who has uh, condescended from the very throne of heaven to dwell among people who not only treat you as a stranger, but treat you as an enemy and persecute you, Lord, and that you uh, went so far as to give up your life for the sake of them and for the sake of their lives, Lord. We thank you that we are a people who stand as this incredible testimony to that reality. That because of your love, we stand here as a community of believers who are given the incredible privilege and honor to worship you and give a testimony to you by how we love and serve one another in our very, very feeble and imperfect ways. Lord, we pray that you always help us to remember that the greatest gift that we have in this life is to exhibit your love for us through how we love one another. And that that's how the world will know us as your disciples, through our love of one another, and that that will draw them to you. We pray these things in Christ's sake. For his name we pray these things. Amen.